You know, we are really excited to be able to screen films once again, but the pandemic also gave us, my team and I, the time to really think about like what type of cinema we wanted this to be and what type of programming do we want to have. So we were able to take some time to like really think about these questions. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am joined this week by Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Uh, and in fact, really, it's me joining Rebecca because she's been a more consistent voice of the podcast than I have lately uh, due to a whole variety of different things. Uh, we are going to talk about a few different things. But first, you know, uh, Rebecca, how, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Um, you know, Good Mother's Day stuff, as I'm, I'm sure you did. Uh, went bowling for the first time since uh, my senior year of high school, and um, I can't bowl. I'm bad at it. Had fun, though. Turns out it's more fun if you drink while you're bowling. <laughs> Uh, you know, most places uh, are aware of that and they provide alcohol services. Uh, I'm glad that you qualified that with since your senior year of high school, because I was going to say if you got to this point in your life and you'd never bowled, I was going to be shocked. Among the group of people was a friend of mine who she had like a four month old baby and she bowled a strike while holding the baby. I was going to say the baby was better than you, in which case you should. OK, yeah, there, yeah. there was a four year old and she was better than me. So... <laughs> I think that's a great Mother's Day story that the woman holding her infant was able to bowl better. Sadly, I did not get out to the cinemas, though, to, to see Doctor Strange, which I know you were able to do. So uh, I'll be I'll be peppering you with some questions on that uh, later on in the podcast. And then uh, for our feature segment this week, we have an interview with Moises Esparza, exhibition manager at the Digital Gym Cinema in San Diego, which actually uh, lost their lease while closed due to COVID, luckily we were able to find a new location to move into, but had to actually move into it <laughs> while COVID was happening and, and restart their cinema. And it's a it's a really interesting cinema. And, and I had uh, a lot of good time speaking with Moses. Uh, and that segment is part of our Indie Focus series, which is sponsored by our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks. A quick word from Spotlight. Uh, they are the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment events, cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. As expected, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness uh, did come out at the top of the box office over its opening weekend, beating out Holdover the Bad Guys, which fell a modest 40% in its third week. Uh, internally, you know, we were looking at kind of 170 million opening weekend domestic as the guideline for what 
internally at box office we would think of as, as a good result. Thankfully, the film did earn over $170 million, to be exact. Its domestic weekend opening total was $187 million. You add in $262.4 million international, and we're looking at a total global opening weekend of just under $450 million. It was the uh, highest opening weekend, actually, during the pandemic era for several international markets, including Korea. Uh, here, here domestically, it was the second highest domestic opening weekend of the pandemic era. Statistic that caught my eye here is that a premium formats, globally speaking, uh, accounted for 36% of overall box office for Doctor Strange opening weekend. Uh, a statistic that caught my eye and, and kind of made me a little bit nostalgic, I guess, Russ, is that with this release of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, five of the top seven pandemic era domestic opening weekends are now claimed by Marvel MCU titles. Um, it's a little bit of deja vu all over again, back to pre-pandemic with the Disney MCU domination of the box office. Yeah, that back to normal is nice. I'm glad to see it. So uh, were you glad to see the film as well? Or what did you think? Yeah, I, I was. You know, I finally caught up with Spider-Man No Way Home not too long ago. And I was kind of 50-50 on that movie. Uh, I thought the first hour was a little noisy and tedious. And then once you actually get to having three Spider-Men in, in the same place, I enjoyed it. And this movie is kind of the same. The setup of this kind of takes a little bit. And then once it's really running, I did have a good time with it. More than anything else, I think the key question with Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness is does this feel like a movie made by the guy who made the evil dead movies and the answer is yes and that's kind of amazing because there's some stuff in this movie that rebecca you as a fan of old school horror i think it's a stretch to call this a horror movie it is certainly the most horror leaning movie marvel has made and in their places in it where there's stuff directly imported from the Evil Dead movies and from some of Sam Raimi's signature films. And that's just kind of fantastic and amazing to see. Like, I had a great time with that stuff. I think the, the other big question is, what does this do for the Marvel Universe going forward? And that is a big question mark still at the end of this movie. I wanted to ask you about that because it feels like with Iron Man departed from the MCU, they're kind of using Doctor Strange as their replacement, you know, one who brings yes. everyone together. Everyone goes to Doctor Strange when they need something magical. You know, he's, yes. a, he's a sassy brunette. Like Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> he's but, he's the he's kind of a mentor figure. He's the he's be, he has become sort of a you know an axis around which all of these other characters and events uh, revolve a little bit. But is he is he anything more than that at this point? I want to know because I, I a friend of mine who saw it mentioned to me he's like Doctor Strange is like his character arc began and ended in the first film. And now he's just a guy you go to for magical stuff. Whereas with Iron Man, I mean, we saw his character develop and people were still emotionally invested throughout multiple phases of the MCU. Do you think Doctor Strange has the goods to replicate that? I mean, the thing is, nobody can replicate that exactly because so much of that is based on Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Downey Jr. at a specific point in time. You know, he was experiencing his own redemption arc at that point, and it's reflected in the movies. And that is not a replicable thing. Like, that is a unique aspect that. I think helped make the Marvel, the first phase of Marvel's movies, really it made them what they were because you had this unique thing in Downey that 
no, nobody else has that. Nobody else is that. And and that's going to be tough for Marvel. Um, so does Doctor Strange have that? No, he doesn't. I would argue that he has more of a character arc in this movie than maybe your friend was was suggesting. Uh, certainly the, the big arc in the first movie was can he learn to be selfless to some extent you know can and and that is still part of his arc it's like you know there's uh the last spider-man movie finally brought the with great power comes great responsibility thing into the mcu and this movie does a little bit of that too for doctor strange in the sense of like you know the 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 core without spoiling anything for those who are concerned about that sort of thing the core of this has a young woman named america chavez bouncing into our universe finding doctor strange but the thing is she's met a bunch of other doctor stranges and they were jerks and that kind of reflects decisions that strange made in Avengers Endgame, where it's like, Oh, you know, do you sacrifice a bunch of people in order to stop Thanos? And so those are questions that linger with him in the same way as some of, you know, there are questions that lingered for Tony Stark that were answered throughout some of the other MCU movies. Um, I think there's a character arc here. Um, I think there's some problems. I think that the one problem is that America Chavez is not much of a character in this movie. She's played well, but she doesn't have a lot to do. She spends most of the movie running. Uh, is it just and- set up for, I mean, she has her upcoming Ms. Marvel Disney Plus show. So it's just kind of seeding in those elements to keep people coming back to the franchise. I mean, there is some of that, but we've certainly seen that before to good effect in, That's say, what they do. Civ- you know, Civil War, Spider Man's introduced, and and of course, there's a difference in uh, recognizance between Spider Man, one of the biggest characters in the world, and uh, America Chavez, who is very popular to some readers, but is largely the fandom is largely confined to comics readers uh, so and far. She's, she's a know. pretty recent character, right? I mean, she yes, was introduced yes. not too long ago, so she she did not kick off the Marvel, you know, help kick off. Marvel comic books back in the 60s. So, yeah. I think the other thing is, if you look back at waves of Marvel movies, you know, the first or phases, as they call them, you know, the first phase capped with the Avengers. It introduced all these characters and it felt like an event thing, you know? And then the second phase phase two, that ended with Endgame? Phase two ended with. No, phase two ended with um, uh, Age of Ultron. And phase two is. See, you forgot it. And yep, <laughs> sure did. And you know, once upon a time, I think this has changed a little bit now. But once upon a time, people would have told you that the even-numbered Star Trek movies were the good ones, and the odd-numbered ones were not uh-huh. as good, maybe. And I think in this case, it's like, well, so far the even-numbered fa- or the the odd-numbered Marvel phases are the good ones, and the even-numbered ones are where they're struggling a little bit to find their footing again and decide really what's next. And the thing is, there doesn't have to be a what's next necessarily, but Marvel has set us up for that. You know, Marvel has very much created this idea that there does need to be a what's next. There are phases. We-, we have story arcs. We're, we're not just like a random collection of movies. And Correct. So you have to be invested in a character or an idea or something holding it together. I mean, you know, one thing I will say about this movie specifically is credit to the the screenwriter, Michael Waldron and to Kevin Feige and to Sam Raimi, especially because they do keep this movie very focused on a couple of big emotional beats. You know, it's like, Doctor Strange has made choices that he begins to be uncertain about. Uh, Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff, has 
lost even a sense of family and is desperate to regain it. Uh, America Chavez is thrown through dimensions and wants to regain her sense of family and self. It's like, um, you know, those things all kind of unify thematically. They all relate to one another. And this movie is very good about constantly reminding you, like, this is what this is about. Like, it's not about a big world ending thing. It's not about a bunch of other stuff. It's about these people who happen to be astonishingly powerful trying to resolve their big emotional crises. And that keeps this movie on its feet, which is good. And it keeps it like in a place, which is very helpful because otherwise I think this movie could really easily spin out into like, there's a lot happening. The focus, uh, smaller stakes. I mean, I'll have to see if I agree with this after I've actually seen the movie, which I plan on doing this week. But it, it, it gives me like Ant-Man vibes a little bit. Like that was yes. one that felt like that was a good movie. It was not splashy. Yes. It correct. was solid. Yes. And this is a little splashier. I mean, certainly there's a bit, the trailer tells you that Patrick Stewart and has returned to play Professor X. And it's like, there's some stuff in the middle of this movie that is clearly like, okay, we're putting the idea of certain characters that Marvel has not been able to play with mm. yet. Marvel Studios and the X-Men are the big obvious one. And there's a little bit of other stuff as well. But so there is a little bit of leaning into the future. Of course, there's some post credit stuff that continues to lean into the future that I won't spoil exactly. Although, um, but those are the things where I'm like, I don't know what this means. I know it means that like, okay, Charles Xavier, a version of Charles Xavier is in this movie, which means that the Marvel universe now can have its own Charles Xavier. Okay, cool. But you don't really get any more than that. And so if you want to know, like, what does Marvel do next? I honestly don't know. And coming out of this movie, coming out of this movie, I don't even know if, like, it seems like they intend for Benedict Cumberbatch to stick around as Doctor Strange. Um, And I think, you know, the suggestion is that there will be probably another big event, Avengers event type thing, whether it'll be called an Avengers movie or not. There will be some sort of big event kind some of thing. Some big kind of team up, rally the troops. There will be, there will be something thing. like that at some point, or one of the movies that is coming will act as that, you know, um, whether it's, you know, whether it's labeled as that or not. Um, but it's not like there's a big there's not a big villain teased exactly. Um, so you don't know like, oh, they're going to fight Thanos and we're going to see everything building to Thanos. Like at this point, you don't know what everything is building towards. And again, that's okay. It's just different from what Marvel has conditioned us to look for and to expect. What's the next uh, MCU slated? Is it uh- Thor's the next one? And then uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Of course, huge questions about Black Panther, because obviously the death of Chadwick Boseman changed that movie significantly. What is Black Panther 2? I don't know. And, you know, we're bopping around from we got multiverse and then Thor outer space space shenanigans. And then we have kind of I assume Wakanda forever will be, you know, a grounded Wakanda set kind of uh, almost thriller vibes. The first one had in a way like a little heistiness. It was quite good. I just, yeah. it, it, I'm just curious to see how they are going to tie yeah. all that together and what it's going to build to and what our first Robert Downey Jr.-less Marvel phase is, is going to look like in retrospect. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, 
yeah, we've got we've got Thor, we've got Black Panther two. There's Guardians three coming. There's the next Ant Man movie coming. Is Ant Man going to be the big team up movie? Probably not. Um, after that, there's Guardians of the Galaxy three, um, which is probably almost certainly not going to be the big team up movie because that is the one that's going to kind of cap off James Gunn's own little Guardians trilogy. And it seems like that's probably going to be pretty Guardians focused. And that's it. Um, After that, we get the Marvels, which is, you know, uh, the Captain Marvel 2 that's been renamed. A bunch of other characters will certainly be in that movie. And then potentially Fantastic Four. So Fantastic Four could be like if there was going to be sort of a, you know, a team up movie kind of thing. Fantastic Four would be the place to to probably pin your hopes. Um, and that one, of course, we don't know what that movie is going to be. We don't know who's in it. Uh, there are some things in Doctor Strange that make some suggestions, but I don't think they actually tell us anything casting-wise. Um, Will somebody John- finally be able to make a good Fantastic Four movie? My be God, great. imagine the possibilities. Be fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, and it's not going to be John Watts who directed the last three Spider-Man movies. He was going to do Fantastic Four until last week or the week before, and then he bowed out. Um, and I think, you know, he's done three Marvel movies in a row, and that's probably enough for a while. I uh, really liked his his earlier movie, Cop Car. Like, I, I I'm, I'm ready for him to go back to, you know, take a break and do, uh, Cop- do some original script stuff. Cop Car was a really neat little movie. Saw it at Sundance, was a fan. And so I was psyched when he did Spider-Man. And it's, you know, we've talked about this before, how John Watts has kind of been like Marvel's invisible director in a way. And so, yeah, he's he's going to go make his, his name doing some other stuff. So who's going to make Fantastic Four? No idea. We don't know literally anything about it at this point. So is it even going to be the end of phase four? We don't know. Like it I mean, could when change. When are the X-Men going to come in? When are the Fantastic Four going to come in? A lot of questions and no answers. But uh, Russ, I, I'm, I'm glad to have some of my questions answered. I'm, I'm, uh, I might have to, Daniel Loria is not on this podcast episode. He cannot listen. Uh, I might play hooky from work one day this week and go see a matinee. I, that's what I did last week. I encourage it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, thanks, Russ, so much. And uh, now let's get into our feature segment with Moises Esparza, Exhibition Manager at the Digital Gym Cinema in San Diego. Moises, thank you for joining us. Uh, Moises, how are you doing today? Hi, Rebecca. I'm doing great. Uh, We're on the eve of reopening our micro cinema, so I'm really excited. And I'm really thankful for this opportunity to be able to talk with you today. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to speak with you as well. I mean, my favorite episodes to do were ones that, you know, we get to speak to an, an indie operator. And I just like to find out what the independent film scene is like in different cities, you know, around, around the country. So, I mean, in San Diego, what does the indie cinema slash indie film scene look like? And, and what role does Digital Gym play in that? Yeah, we're really lucky that we have a very diverse and multifaceted film scene here locally. We have not only major, major film festivals like the San Diego Asian Film Festival, the San Diego Latino Film Festival, which we also produce, Jewish Film Festival. I mean, there's so many different types of film festivals in town that really allow cinephiles and independent film lovers to to be exposed to the very best that world cinema has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have... Um, some indie cinemas like the Paloma Theater, which is a wonderful one-screen cinema in Encinitas, which is this very beautiful 
uh, beachside town. Um, and then there's also some landmarks in town which also play independent films. Um, but I guess in the central San Diego area, the Digital Gym Cinema does provide weekly access to indie films that wouldn't be screened in other film, uh, in other cinemas around town. Um, so I think that's our main function is to be able to give a voice and a platform to uh, tours to emerging filmmakers who, you know, have these amazing, exciting propositions that may otherwise not get theatrical play uh, mm -hmm. in San Diego. So this that's where we enter and we give these filmmakers and these films that exhibition platform. Um, we're big believers of watching films communally. I know that the pandemic has pushed us all into our living rooms, yeah. uh, but what's the most exciting aspect of reopening is really being able to offer this opportunity to watch films as a community, you know, there's such a special kinship that happens when you're watching something truly moving on screen or something exciting or innovative. Mm -hmm. And when you see it with an audience, it just enhances that experience. And the type of content that we screen isn't always linear, I should say. There's <laughs> some of them don't follow tradition, some of the films don't follow traditional plot devices. So, what I love the most is hearing our audience kind of discuss the film afterwards it's the in best the lobby. Part. Yes, best part. Yeah, the the discussion is the best part, and I guess I'm like not really that interested in whether or not people like the movies or not. But I am interested in the discussion that comes from, you know, the innovation um, in genre modalities or sensibilities, or you know, if a film is really confounding, like I love the opportunity to hear everyone else's perspectives on like what the meaning of the film was, for example, because it can be so subjective and that not only like enhances the viewing experience, but it also enhances my kind of procedure as a programmer. Like when I see that audiences are willing to take a risk on an experimental film or a film that's a little bit, you know, left of center, you know, it prompts me to look for more films that are in that vein. Or sometimes if, you know, there's a string of films that are maybe just two out there, I kind of scale back and try to book something that's a little bit more accessible. So, it, you know, that public feedback really helps me kind of find that perfect medium be between the accessible fair and the more kind of avant-garde films. Um, but yeah, just really humble to be able to reopen our cinema um, in a town that's already so rich with, you know, organizations trying to screen wonderful films from all over the world and just humble to be able to be a part of, uh, of, of this amazing community. You mentioned that you're on the eve of opening this, this micro cinema. Um, so thank you even more for taking the time to speak with me because I know you must be uh, real, real busy right now. Can you explain to us kind of the, the timeline of uh, Digital Gym kind of opening, reclosing? What, what's the, what are you opening and, and what closed and uh, what's the story? Yeah, so um, we established the Digital Gym Cinema in 2013 in a neighborhood called North Park in San Diego. Uh, we took over an old auto parts store and turned it into a movie theater. And it really, you know, at the time was one of a kind in that neighborhood in particular. And we were really instrumental in revitalizing that particular block of the North Park neighborhood. We were there and, you know, it took a while to build word of mouth and an audience just because people are very used to go to the movie theaters they're used to, or maybe sometimes people don't want to seek, seek out some of these independent films until they do and they become mm -hmm. fans of them. 
Um, so it took a while to maybe get into uh, the swing of things, but once we did, you know, we really became a really exciting hub uh, where cinephiles could come visit week after week and be exposed to like amazing content on a weekly basis. But you know, our lease expired during the pandemic uh, in 2020, um, and we weren't able to renew it. So in August of 2020, we moved out of that North Park location and. At the same time, we were developing a relationship with the University of California, San Diego, and they were building um, a new cultural center in downtown San Diego. And they were really excited about the idea of having a cinema be part of the uh, of this new cultural center. Mm-hmm. So we were able to work it out so that so that the new digital gym cinema is in this amazing new building called Park and Market, um, which is in downtown San Diego, um, and. Here we are now, you know, um, we closed in August of 2020, like I said, and it's been almost two years since we were last open. So, you know, we are really excited to be able to screen films once again, but the pandemic also gave us, my team and I, the time to really think about like what type of cinema we wanted this to be and what type of programming do we want to have. So we were able to take some time to like really think about these questions. And mm-hmm. I know now that as we like we're reopening, it all seems kind of like rushed, but it's really been like two years and <laughs> two years in the making. Um, You're kind of yeah, like rebuilding I, the cinema from from reset. Oh yeah, th- that's a good way of putting it. And in a brand new neighborhood, so we anticipate that it'll take a while for us to build a type of. Um, attendance that we used to have at our former location but like I said we're also very excited by the idea of tapping into a new neighborhood you know we are surrounded by residence buildings that are 20 stories high maybe so I know there's people in these buildings that love watching films but you know it's just going to take a while for us to be able to reach them but it's an endeavor and a challenge that we're really excited to to undertake and the, our partnership with you know the University of California San Diego was really valuable, and they've been super supportive. And mm-hmm. you know, I whenever people stop by for tours, and they're like, "Oh, there's a cinema here," and I see their eyes light up, and they're like, "No, not open yet, s- not open yet, not well, quite." No, but <laughs> but they get excited by the idea of a cinema in their neighborhood. Oh, nice. Um, so I, I I hope that we become kind of like a destination for cinephiles in downtown San Diego for those who like don't want to drive outside of this bubble to go to a movie theater. Um, I hope that we become their destination. It's all very, very exciting, definitely a reset. Um, but you know, with each email that we send out, with each social media post that we put up, I see responses from individuals who support us at North Park in our former location saying, can't wait for you to open. And when you see like advanced sales coming in, it, it's reassuring to know that like you still have a place in the community after a long absence. I mean, that's so important, I think, especially for art house cinemas, that connection with local institutions and, and just the community. And not only are you dealing with the, the struggle of resetting your theater during the pandemic when everyone was closed, it was, it was so key to maintain that line of communication with your customers. It's an added challenge for the digital gym because I imagine not only do you not really know when you're going to be able to reopen because you have this whole reopening process that's that's taking up a lot of your time and and then when you do come back it's like oh hey we're we're back we're just in a different neighborhood how do you approach that that challenge from like a communications marketing perspective well it's it's definitely been a challenge i think we're all creatures of habit we like things to be exactly the same place that they've always been 
But if anything, I think the pandemic has taught us all that we have to adapt and beyond adapting, we also have to support what's important to us. So if independent film is something that we're really passionate about, like the onus is on the audience to really seek that independent theater out or that independent content. Otherwise, you know, we won't be able to serve the community anymore. So it's we're here to provide the films, but I do think that, you know, there's people out there who really want the cinematic experience to continue. If people really want to preserve like the wonderful tradition of going to a movie, they have to go to the movies, I think. Like that's the bottom line. So we're there to help them along the way via email, social media posts, advertisements, radio interviews, these type of interviews also. Um, so we've been doing our part in, get, in, in getting the word out. Um, and then something that I'm looking forward to really you know, reestablishing is we had wonderful um, partnerships with different film festivals and organizations who um, hosted their screenings at the Digital Gym Cinema. Um, there's a film group called Film Geeks here in San Diego and they program yearly showcases um, of horror cinema or we also hosted the San Diego Asian Film Festival for their screenings, the German Film Festival. So I really want to know, I, I want these institutions to know that our venues available to them to screen their films because I think the key to longevity is in these partnerships with other local institutions and aligning ourselves under a common goal, um, which is the public exhibition of film. So beyond you know the, just the regular audience member, it's getting in touch with these other arts leaders um, and making sure that they know that our venue is available to them. Outside of the screenings that come out of these partnerships, you know, as you're rebuilding and, and resetting what the, the, the most ideal version of, of Digital Gym, obviously programming is a huge part of that. You mentioned that you, I, I love, sometimes you program something more accessible to get people in and then they, you hook them for the weirder stuff. <laughs> um, as you open tomorrow, as you, as you look forward to rebuilding that audience, uh, what sort of programming strands are you looking at? How is it going to maybe be different from what it was before? What what, what thought went into that on, on your guys' end? Yeah, I think right now we're like in a very exploratory period in terms of getting reacquainted with the content that's available to us. And we're responding based off of what's available to us. But what I found, especially with the films that I've programmed in May, which include uh, Memoria and In Front of Your Face and Gaspar Noe's newest Vortexes, that a lot of these films are really, really personal and internal, but through that exploration of these internal feelings and ideas, great big ideas are posed back on the audience about um, existentialism and why we're here on Earth and how to make the most out of life. and. That might I feel be like we've all been in, in the middle of an existential yeah. crisis for the past few years. Yeah. So it kind of fits. So it's just, it's just, yeah, they, these filmmakers are posing these questions right back at you. And I think a really great way for us to kind of mediate our own kind of struggles with what it means to be alive right now is through art and through seeing other characters, whether fictional or not, go through something similar. And I walked and feel away the energy from the other people in the room who are going through that same thing rather than just being on your sofa. Exactly, yeah. That's why the community aspect is, is so important. Is, you know, if we are going to heal from the chaos that the pandemic brought upon us, we all have to 
come together, I think. And I think art is a perfect way to kind of con conceptualize the trauma that we've been through and hopefully come up with collective strategies to, to overcome what we've all been through. But yeah, in terms of programming, really just trying to listen to, I guess, what the filmmakers are saying themselves and trying to maybe provide our cinema as a vessel to finding some sort of resolution with the state of the world right now. And then eventually, you know, I think I'll go down some familiar roads. We screened a lot of documentaries with a social justice angle. Um, we, we screened a lot of films in Spanish. Uh, I mentioned that we also produce a San Diego Latino Film Festival. So films in Spanish are always really, really successful. And, you know, we also did different showcases throughout the year that I'd love to repeat. Um, we used to have a showcase called The Locals, where we screened local films. I look forward to bringing that back. And then around the, um, you know, the December, January, when the buzz is around, a lot of nominated films, either through the Academy or through Independent Spirit Awards, um, we have this showcase called Four Year Consideration, where we screen some of these very, very celebrated films. Um, and then sometimes we even move films over from the landmark or other chains that may not have found their audience, and we call those last chance indies. So there's all these showcases that were in play, you know, when we were previously open that I want to reintroduce over time. They might work, they might not. Um, but right now, like I said, we're just exploring and first things first is just opening and letting people know that we are that we're back there's um, a gradient between the outside world and the movie world you gotta you gotta exactly. ease into it's the almost, zone it's like a threshold that you have to cross into in order to gain access to the actual film but i personally like sitting through all that stuff uh some other people might not but i enjoy just seeing moving images on screen to be honest so yeah, there's definitely a place for ads in the digital gym cinema. Well, Moises, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And I hope I'll be in San Diego one day and I can uh, go to the digital gym. Oh, I, I would love to for you to come by and watch films. And thank you again for this opportunity. It was very, very special. that wraps up the latest Indie Focus episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks once again to our sponsors at Spotlight Cinema Network. Also, thank you to Russ Fisher and Moises Esparza. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, Box Office Studios, and Record Edit Podcast. And on behalf of the whole team, we're excited to welcome you back for next Thursday's episode. Thanks and have a great day.